This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me to discuss economic neoliberalism and its effects on the economy generally and on health and healthcare specifically is Dr. Lynn Paramore, an author and research analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're most welcome. Dr. Paramore's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners are aware of my recent interviews with Dr. Stephen Wolf and Professor Mullen Harris regarding declining U.S. life expectancy, with Professor Cal Graham regarding diseases and deaths of despair, and with Professor Katz Olson regarding her recently published book, Ethically Challenged, P.E. Storms U.S. Healthcare. There are numerous earlier interviews, including my interview with William Darity on his book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans, and Brian Alexander's The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in an American Small Town. These and others all directly beg the questions, what effect have economic neoliberal policies had on our economy, and what effects these policies had and are having on U.S. population health, and how we deliver health care in this country? Uh, in Dr. Paramore's recent essay, Our Economic System is Making Us Mentally Ill, she argued it's no coincidence that the theology of neoliberalism, dedicated in part to deregulating businesses and usurping the government's role in providing for the common good with privatization and austerity, has caused increasing mental health problems both nationally and globally. Listeners are well aware that, for example, the U.S. experienced over 100,000 drug overdose deaths in the year ending April 21, more than quintupling since 2000. So with that as background, uh, briefly, let's get right into this. Uh, Lynn, I realize this is a very large question, but let's start with an overview question. Um, Since I noted in the intro, often sometimes referred to as a theology. Yeah. uh, What is the theology of neoliberalism? Can you give me sort of an overview? Yes, absolutely. Um, The neoliberal uh, movement began as empires were declining, um, namely the Habsburg Empire. Um, You had economists who were working in Vienna in the 1920s and 30s, uh, names like von Mises and Hayek. Uh, They were working for the Vienna Chamber of Commerce, and they were worried about how a country like Austria was going to survive in the new global landscape. They were worried about socialism. They were worried about communism. Uh, They were afraid of nation states that were going to be doing things like raising tariffs, and they were afraid about democracies um, and countries which were going to recognize the interests of regular people. They were representing, of course, working for the Chamber of Commerce, they Mm -hmm. were representing the interests of business. So their main question was how capitalists were going to get along uh, in this new world without colonies to rely on to extract resources from. They wanted to protect capitalists from interference and the seizure of their property. And so they sort of imagine, and this is where the theological component comes in, they imagined a sacred space that would be free from all this agitation, the agitation uh, among ordinary people for economic rights, agitation from labor unions, 
demands to allocate resources back to regular folks. They wanted a sacred space, uh, which they envisioned as a sort of transcendent world economy. And here, capital and goods would flow without any restraint. This would be a place where capitalists were safe from democratic processes, and they were protected by institutions and laws, and even by force, if that was necessary. Um, Neoliberals, they weren't fully opposed to democracies as long as they could maintain a safe haven for capitalists. But hey, if they didn't, they were just fine with authoritarianism too. I think we're seeing uh, evidence of this today. So this becomes a kind of theology, a longing for a utopia, an abstract world of numbers that meddling human beings would not be able to spoil. And the premises of this world uh, were that what was good for capitalists was was uh, was the operating principle, and it was a place where society really didn't exist, um, or at the very least, society should be kept completely separate from the economy. Um, and 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 at the very worst, society was actually the enemy of the global economy, a place where these uh, non-market you know values and popular concerns. Uh, got in the way of what capitalists wanted to do. So that is where we get a theological mindset uh, that that starts out as a fairly fringe movement, but obviously over the course of decades uh, infiltrates mainstream thinking to the point that it in the 1980s begins to take over. Right. So it becomes uh, it blossoms, obviously, under the Reagan administration. Uh, in the 80s, in fact, I was reminded in prepping of Sidney Blumenthal's 86 book, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment. And yes. I think that volume is still resonant uh, uh, today. Um, you do, uh, relative to um, your your phrase, uh, uh, everyone else or, the, or non-capitalists or wage laborers, you do note in your most recent essay um, – you begin to understand that you don't have much agency in the world or individuals don't. And I think that yes. is the more technical way of what you were explaining. And then you also, uh, uh, citing your uh, recent piece, uh, neoliberalisms dedicate themselves to, and here's your quick list or short list, unrestricted global trade, crushing labor unions, deregulating businesses and usurping government's role in providing for the common good with privatization yes. and austerity, as I noted uh, in the opening. Um, let me just ask as, a, as an aside, and I, I've had this conversation since I mentioned Steve Wolf and Kathleen Mullen Harris on declining life expectancy. There obviously, there's much debate in the academic community about to what extent does, uh, does income and wealth inequality uh, correlate or increasing such mm-hmm. and correlate with uh, declining population health. And of course, for mm-hmm. academics, they tie themselves in knots because of course, it's very hard because they're confounding factors and variables. It's very hard to, yeah. to say specifically or exactly. But we do know uh, in great detail that we've had wage stagnation in this country for several decades. You did it in one of your recent writings interview uh, the author or scholar uh, Lance Taylor. But if you could just uh, provide a few comments on the extent to which We've had uh, wage stagnation in this country over more or less now four plus decades. Yeah, well, you know, Lance Taylor is is an interesting economist, and he sort of represents 
a non-mainstream view in economics, at least until fairly recently, that economists should even be looking at labor. <laughs> it, it seems like a strange thing to say that mainstream neoliberal economists, mm-hmm. um, that was the dominant you know, perspective since the 19, really 1950s, it, 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 it started to creep into the mainstream with Milton Friedman and then by the 70s and 80s kind of takes over. You would you it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't consider labor as a major factor in the economy, but they didn't. And they considered that the market allocated resources appropriately and the people were being paid what they were supposed to be paid. But Lance Taylor and other uh, heterodox economists did not buy this line and looked at how actually the, the, the market doesn't magically allocate resources in an appropriate way to workers, something has been holding down wages, and it's not the magical invisible hand. It's actually the very real um, activities of capitalists and business owners to uh, break up and suppress labor unions, for example, to formulate all kinds of ways. You know, now we're seeing the gig economy. We're seeing um, people being scheduled in ways that make it, you know, excessively difficult for them to, uh, you know, decide, determine what their hours are going to be, et cetera, et cetera, outsourcing uh, staff, et cetera, et cetera. All these multiple ways that that wages are deliberately kept down. So it's not just the mark, you know, some 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 kind of force like gravity uh, keeping wages down. They're being kept down deliberately. Mm-hmm. In fact, per your writing and his comments, wage, as you know, wage repression just doesn't happen. And he yeah. talks about, as you do, this dual economy, uh, good wage workers versus those with stagnant or falling uh, wages. And of course, the reasons for this for the latter group are are several. And you just noted globalization, outsourcing the gig economy or employees versus contractors. And of course, the yeah. Fed, uh, as it relates to what it's trying to do or accomplish relative to interest rates and who that, moreover, uh, supports or helps. So I did want to make brief notion of that because in previous uh, interviews and discussions, of course, this issue has come up. I do want to, since you also have written recently about, and I'll preface this by uh, saying um, this administration, of course, has identified equity, particularly health equity, uh, prominently, and there's uh, and on the healthcare side, HHS, et cetera, it's every day there's at least rhetoric about this. Um, mm-hmm. So in that context, let me ask you, what effect has neoliberalism had or is having on a racial equality or specifically health inequality? And that will lead me into uh, PE and we'll get into your discussion or work relative to PE and uh, intrusion into the uh, healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to the idea of theology, the neoliberal perspective really holds that the market is God and everything should be uh, subordinate to it and serve it and be determined by its uh, its its influence, including things that like education and medicine which uh, are areas in in which market forces can be very pernicious indeed. Um, We typically think that doctors are going to be deciding what's good for us and uh, and what benefits our health. 
you know, um, based on their skill and their and their experience as healers. But increasingly, that is not the case. And, and of course, we have tremendous uh, influence of corporations in medicine going back to, you know, health insurers, which obviously have discriminated against uh, people without resources. Uh, we have all kinds of things. I know you're going to get into private equity in a moment, so I won't touch on that yet. But it's pretty obvious. And a, a situation like the pandemic has just really shown a light on it. That, that our extremely economically unequal society begets extremely unequal outcomes in healthcare. Uh, we, and we know that people of color and women especially have suffered tremendously during the pandemic uh, and their health outcomes uh, are, you know, have, have been less than others. We also know that um, for Work ordinary working people in general, you know, life life expectancies have been going down rather than up, as you would expect mm-hmm. them to in a wealthy economy like ours. Uh, and there's myriad research that supports this. I I, I don't think it's really um, it's really debatable at this point. But yes, an, an unequal economy produces unequal healthcare outcomes that. Um, you know, when, when, when we talk about linking economic conditions to mental health and neoliberalism to mental health, when you don't have any expectation that you have agency in your life, you, you mentioned this question of agency, mm-hmm. and that you're expected to be responsible for everything on your own, even things that you can't control, like whether or not you get sick. Uh, that is a very anxiety-producing predicament to be in, and it's deliberate. Once again, it's it's not something that just happens. Neoliberals actually believe that people should be kept in this anxious state because that makes them better uh, controlled and more likely to serve the interests of capitalists if they're in this state of constant precariousness. It's a means of social control to keep people anxious. So I want to, you know, really underscore that point. We have, <laughs> we have a situation in which anxiety is not just a byproduct of the neoliberal per- perspective. Uh, it's, it's a goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, on the agency point, I'll just, and I've said this and it, it comes to mind. Um, the reality is that the expectation that, you know, you know, and it's, there's a superficial logic to this, certainly that people are responsible for their own health, certainly. But the reality is when you don't have a self agency, okay, as you, as you noted, it's, it's impossible for you to maintain a good health. It's just, it's just not even possible. So the, the argument that, you know, the individuals were solely and wholly responsible is, is really, does really not hold water, uh, particularly moreover for, and let's just categorize Medicaid beneficiaries largely. Right. And also too for Medicare or duels, Medicare, Medicaid duels, particularly if you're cognitively impaired as a frail elderly. And per your point about the COVID, we certainly well know uh, who disproportionately suffered beyond minorities, of course, the frail elderly as well. Uh, yes. Um, I will just say, uh, I, relative to market dominance, and I saw you cited this, and I was I was glad I saw this because I had forgotten this. In 07, 
uh, Alan Greenspan, who ran the Fed uh, for almost 20 years, uh, made that uh, comment. And again, uh, it's in your more recent uh, writing, quote unquote, it hardly makes any difference who will be the next president. The world is governed by market forces. I think that largely sums up <laughs> sums up the view. Um, yes. Uh, in any event, let's let's go on then to uh, I did interview, as I noted recently, a uh, professor at Lehigh, uh, Kat Sultzen, about her PE volume on healthcare ethically challenged. Mm-hmm. You've had some recent writings uh, and have weighed in on this specific specific to um, ED staffing. So yes. let me, let, what what was what did your research find? And feel free, of course, to mention uh, the physician you highlight or note and his experience. Yes, well, I really got interested in this subject during the pandemic because I came across a physician by the name of uh, Ming Lin, who had been a, an emergency room physician in Washington State, and he began to complain about the lack of PPE during the pandemic, and he was brushed off. And he became so concerned about it that he went to social media to voice his concerns. And he was promptly fired. And interestingly, you know, he was technically employed not by the hospital where he worked, but by a staffing company. Now, staffing companies employ the physician, the the emergency room physicians in about half the hospitals in the United States. Um, they're technically known as contract management groups. Mm-hmm. This kind of entity started back in the 70s because physicians had a legitimate concern of how they were going to staff emergency rooms so that there were doctors available at all hours. It's kind of a difficult thing to arrange. So they began, they, they started um, organizing themselves as these contract management groups and quickly found that they can make a lot of money. And eventually that attracts Wall Street. And private equity firms began to get involved. So private equity firms have been snapping up these contract management firms. And when they do, uh, physicians often feel like they are no longer in control of how they operate as physicians and how they can care for patients and do things like Dr. Ming Lin did and and, uh, try to make hospitals safe, not just for staff, but for patients also. So Ming Lin found out that, you know, never mind what his role is as a healer. um, He, from the perspective of the private equity firm that owned his staffing company, was there to make money for for the company. That is his sole purpose. And and patients who came in were so many bodies uh, from whom to extract that money. And if there and if the the private equity firm didn't want to spend extra money on PPE, then they would uh, certainly rather fire a doctor who complained about it than provide that necessary equipment. Uh, So I began to look into this and just see how pernicious and pervasive the problem is. Um, You have these gigantic private equity firms like Blackstone, for example, which is um, run by what I refer to as sort of the poster boy for Wall Street greed, Steve Schwartzman. Right, right. uh, Who who is just an an incredible figure straight out of the movie Wall Street. He's like Gordon Gecko. Um, And and it really comes down when you begin to talk to these doctors. I've also talked to a a doctor named Robert McNamara who's been trying to organize uh, healthcare professionals to fight this intrusion of private equity into healthcare. It... um, it really has become a, 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 a situation so severe 
that one psychiatrist uh, who I listened to in a seminar described what physicians are going through as moral injury, um, similar to what soldiers who are being asked to do unethical things you know, in wartime experience, um, they, they are really being asked to, um, to do things and to, or to ignore things that are harmful to patients. And this, I think, is a really great issue to focus on because all of us can end up in the emergency room. In fact, one out of five Americans mm-hmm. ends up there every year, you know, for things like chest pains. Uh, you know, sometimes it's issues like substance abuse because people have nowhere to go. But, uh, but, but, you know, most of us have a pretty good chance of being in an emergency room at some point in our lives. And we certainly don't want Steve Schwartzman from the Blackstone Group deciding whether we get a feeding tube or not. But that's what it's come to. Right. You state that uh, when you go to an ED, uh, it's not a doctor signing what uh, oh, the care or influences the care. It's, again, uh, BlackRock's Steve Schwartzman. You also note um, KKR's ownership of yeah. Envision Healthcare and BlackRock's ownership of Team Health. Dr. Lynn, I thought, made the comment, although certainly understated, uh, corporate uh, medicine, quoting him, has made it difficult for us to speak out for patient safety. Um, yeah. Uh, point well taken, but uh, somewhat understated. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, you know, th- this is a case where um, private equity firms are really neoliberalism on steroids. I mean, it's probably the starkest case. These companies don't do anything really productive in our society, they don't make things, they don't provide services. Um, they are just there to turn a profit, to, to, to get the highest returns for shareholders possible, um, and really by any means necessary, even if it means doing things that are harmful to society, um, destructive to communities, uh, you know, destructive to individual lives. And they really seem to, it's like the reverse Midas touch. Anything that they touch turns into gold for themselves, but into dust for everybody else. I, I really do think they are probably the worst corporate manifestation of neoliberalism that we have today. Right. You you use the phrase uh, greed-driven uh, result, this resulting in greed-driven medicine. Uh, next week, I will be discussing um, skilled nursing <laughs> facilities. And I will say to the Biden administration's credit, they had a fact sheet out late in February where they noted several statistics relative PE ownership of SNFs. They have significantly higher uh, death rates, yes. more avoidable hospital admissions, and higher infection rates. Yes, uh, that's right. We're beginning to see research that, that proves that the influence of these private equity firms on healthcare out- outcomes is negative. Um, and I think the research is also showing that it has a, 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 an effect on pricing uh, prices go up too. So it's, 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 it's bad for the consumer's health and it's bad for the consumer's pocketbook as well. Right. In fact, um, this is, this is a larger issue, of course, is industry consolidation. And, uh, there's very clear evidence that there's no, uh, as industry, you know, the argument is, as industries consolidate, uh, or as providers consolidate, they drive, um, some efficiencies uh, and that should be tolerated. But the problem is they don't commensurately drive improvements in quality. In fact, quality remains the same or actually worsens 
Uh, That's right, because they do things like they 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 attempt to play and often succeed in replacing physicians with uh, employees with a lower level of skill and training to deliver services. They um, cut benefits, they cut pay, and they do all kinds of sneaky things like they they don't allow doctors unless they specifically request, you know, file a request to even see what they are billing. Um, on, you know, for their patients on the physician's behalf, the physicians don't even see what the pricing is. So they are often in the dark um, uh, about the bills that their patients are getting in the mail. Um, And they, you know, they do. And and as in the case of Ming Lin uh, underscores, they um, they don't provide safety equipment. Uh, they extend hours, working hours beyond what is safe. And doctors do not feel in, empowered anymore to speak out when they see safety violations going on, or they may, you know, see another doctor who, let's say, is making a lot of money for the private equity firm, but is endangering patient, patients. I mean, maybe you have a doctor who's an alcoholic, for example, and in the past, that person's fellow physicians would make a recommendation uh, to look at, you know, to look at that doctor and to um, intervene. But now, as long as that doctor is making money for the private equity firm, they're untouchable. And it's the doctor who speaks out against uh, that situation that is in danger of being fired. And they put, um, they force employees to sign all kinds of contracts that uh, make it permissible for the private equity firm to fire them without cause. Right. So in, they, fact, in a way, they are reduced to being part of the gig economy like everybody else. Right. So these are they're forced to sign non-disclosure uh, uh, statements. Um, and in fact, per your writing, I thought it interesting to note uh, Dr. Lin, although he states in your interview with him that he finds this obviously rewarding work, but um, he's now working for the Lakota Indian tribe in Rosebud, South Dakota. Um, So some people obviously would say that uh, that's the result in part of the consequence of being fired uh, by a PE firm. Absolutely. And he, and he's fortunate into, you know, in that he was able to find work and fulfilling work at that. But of course, you know, he had to relocate his whole family. Uh, it's a uh, it's a terrible position for a, a, a physician to be in, and a lot of young physicians are coming into this situation and saying, "Hey, this is this is not what I went to medical school for. This is not what I signed up for." And it's it's really distressing for them. Right, the intimidation, and in fact, Professor Olson made note uh, of interviews, the few interviews she was ab- able to have with actually physicians who were, who sold their. Um, uh, practices and then expressed some uh, remorse. Let's just say remorse yeah. when they learned how they were then managed uh, after the sale thereof. Let me ask you, and I did ask uh, Professor Olson this as well. Um, this is my policy question, of course. What what can be done? And let's say specific to PE, obviously PE and healthcare. Um, that would that would somehow police better police. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this unfettered uh, behavior, um, I will say per your point about um, using mid-level, say, clinicians instead of physicians, um, this gets at the staffing ratio issue. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one of the policy levers that there be staffing ratio requirements, that there would have to be a physician present 
or or at least in supervising and or yeah. there would have to be so many nurses per so many patients yeah. or there had to be a nurse 24 hours be available for 24 hours various sorts of uh, formulas uh, to try to improve staffing but what else might what other thoughts or recommendations might you have yeah well it comes down to uh well certainly what we're doing here which is informing people about the problem and informing members of congress about the problem um, but also, uh, you know, there are regulations already on the books in many states that prohibit an entity like a private equity firm uh, it being involved in making, you know, d- d- decisions about medicine. But they get around that. They have sneaky ways of getting around that by putting, you know, getting a doctor, probably one that doesn't have high ethical standards and just wants to make money uh, and, and sticking that person in, in the firm, at the top of the firm, and paying them a bunch of money to say, hey, I'm, I'm the doctor in charge. So we need to get um, to take a, to scrutinize those situations and make sure uh, that it's not just a doctor sitting there uh, just co- collecting money uh, as, a, as, a, as a ruse for the private equity firm to get away, uh, to get away with um, <clears throat> violating these regulations. But there are also states in which there are no regulations at all. So that mm-hmm. needs to change, too. So it's enforcement of the regulations that we do have and the um, institution of those in places that we don't. Um, and I, I think educating the public is is a really important part of this because it's something that I think everybody kind of intuitively agrees that we don't want Wall Street executives deciding whether we live or die in the emergency room. <laughs> um, and. It's only the private equity firms and the politicians they have in their pockets that actually support this idea. I just think it's one in which the general public, if they really understood what was going on, uh, would be, uh, you know, hard pressed to agree with it. I had a friend recently who was telling me that he took his dog to an animal hospital in Washington state that his family had relied on, you know, for decades with various pets that they had. And suddenly the service was very poor. It was hard to get an appointment. The standard of care seemed to be greatly reduced. And he was trying to figure out what was going on and did a little research and found that sure enough, the animal hospital had recently been taken over by a private equity firm. So people are beginning to see how this impacts their daily lives, you know, even with their pets. (laughs) So, um, I, I, I think it's really important to have conversations like the one that we're having now for for uh, for your listeners. Thank you for that, and I'll just uh, I'll just note I recently sadly had to I have a, a very senior family member. Uh, mm-hmm. We had to visit a local emergency department, um, and subsequent research showed that uh, indeed they were staffed by a. Um, uh, a CMG, as you discussed, contract management group, and in retrospect, I realized when when we, as to use the word, presented, the physician performed no physical examination whatsoever, none. Mm. Just came wow. in. Uh, here's the person. Here's the problem, and immediately uh, said, "Well, I'll have a nurse come." I mean, he himself performed no examination whatsoever. I mean, I was actually incredibly struck. I mean, no, did not use any of his medical training whatsoever. Anyway, okay. Well, Lynn, thank you for this. We're at about our time. So I appreciate this overview. I will note 
uh, provide links to several of your uh, writings for the listener. Um, but it is a good overview, and it's been my remiss that I didn't speak directly to this issue or this model uh, of, of uh, neoliberalism uh, in the past, but this is at least a good introduction, and maybe we could discuss this further down the road. I would be very uh, pleased to do so, and thank you for all the work that you do in bringing these topics uh, for discussion. It's so important. Okay, you take care. You too. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.